American saxophonist Donnie McCaslin has left an indelible mark on the musical landscape. Having grown up gigging with his father's jazz ensembles in Santa Cruz, California, and attending Boston's esteemed Berklee College of Music, he began his recording career in the late 90s and has created over a dozen of his own recordings as a leader. Most recently, he collaborated with David Bowie on Bowie's last studio album, Black Star. In our conversation, Donnie talks a lot about his recent European tour and how it felt to be back in front of live audience and back with his his buddies, back with his peers playing music together and how that felt for him. He also talks about the impact of recording with David Bowie and that whole creative interaction and how that has led to his current creative endeavors, including Blow, his last major release, and some of his more recent singles and what Donnie is looking forward to in the future. We talk some practicing and saxophone and all kinds of great stuff. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Donnie McCaslin. Hi. Welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Donnie McCaslin on The Playful Musician. Thanks so much for being here. I'm really happy to see you. My pleasure, Steve. Good to see you. Yeah. So you were... You were just in Europe, right? You were in, I saw a link, I think it was Antonio Sanchez uh, in Rome. Is that correct? Yeah, I just uh, got back from, um, I actually did two Europe trips. I, okay. The first one was in late June. I played uh, in Italy, uh, in Turin at the Torino okay. Jazz Festival. And it, that was with, um, it was my project. And uh Oh. It was Jason Linder on keyboards and Tim LaFave on bass and Nate Wood on drums. And then we had a, a Gail Ann Dorsey was, was a special guest. Awesome. So it was um, just a really wonderful gig. It was so much fun, you know, to be on stage with everybody. And, you know, even the night before we were, uh, you know, we, we all got in and, and we did a rehearsal mm. and we went out to dinner and we're sitting at the dinner table and I, I just got emotional and I, I said to everybody, man, here we are at the, you know, on the road, sitting together at the dinner table, you know, again, 
um, as it hadn't been for the last year and a half. And, and so that was sort of my re-entry into, into touring was that concert. I, I went back home after that for about a week and then went back to Europe um, with Antonio, this, this project of his that was uh, Scott Colley on bass and, and Miguel Zen on, on saxophone. So just a tremendous band. And we did play in Rome and that was sort of in the middle of the tour. We started in Tbilisi. Uh, oh, where's of that? All places. It's in Georgia. Okay. Which is east of uh, Turkey. I'd never been there before, but a really a beautiful place and um, interesting, you know, architecturally, you know, I think it's one of those places that's changed hands a lot over the, right. over the years. And so there's Persian architecture, there's, you know, these different styles sort of melded together and um, a lot of tremendous food and, and they have a real deep wine culture there that I didn't know anything about until, until we got there. And, um, so that was fun, you know, just they're, I think part of their culture, the folks are really hospitable. So they, they made mm. us feel really welcome. Yeah. And, and, uh, Brantford's band, uh, was there, they were playing the night after us. So, you know, it was, it was, wow. you know, hanging out and then, you know, Brantford and, and Joey and Eric and Justin and Joey Calderazzo. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. So, uh, you know, all those guys, just tremendous musicians. So yeah. it was just fun. It was fun. You know, I'm painting this broad picture here, to but see just, it, just, it was fun to see everybody. And like, man, there they are. And they're playing tomorrow. And then, you know, but we went from there to Warsaw and, and Warsaw saw some more musicians, um, Mike Formanak and Mary Halverson and Tomar uh, Fujiwara were there at the festival um, on the same bill as us. And another really good band, actually a Polish band who I, I didn't know mm. the guys, but they, they sounded really good. And, Anyway, from there, uh, we went to Italy and, and spent did about six or seven gigs in Italy, including Rome. Uh, mm-hmm. And then eventually, um, we were in, where did we go after that? Uh, well, eventually, we were in Croatia. We played in Puglia oh, at the end. It was a lot yeah. of fun. And um, forgetting something. Oh, Spain. No, the last gig was in Spain, in Vittorio at the festival. So it was it was great. I mean... Uh, amazing band, amazing to play with those guys. And, and uh, you know, Scott and Antonio and I have a lot of history together. Um, right. And, and, you know, I don't m- know Miguel as well, but I've known him for a long time. He's incredible mm. um, on and off the stage. So it was just, it was great to be out there with, with my buddies, you know, and, and, um, and just to play music again and travel and all yeah. that was, it felt really, uh, it was just great. Great to be, be out there again. I can only imagine so your project was that off like what what material were you playing was this new material well uh let me think about that for a second um yeah it was it was uh, my last full-length record was called blow and that was right yeah a couple years ago yeah oh oh thanks so so that direction you know this Mm -hmm. hybrid Mm -hmm. of uh pop art improvisation whatever you're going to call it you know, it was it was that sort of concept. So we did we did um, uh, one of the instrumental tracks from that record called "Break the Bond." We did "I Have the Beholder" mm-hmm. with Gale, um, mm-hmm. but then we also, I you know, I did an older tune of mine called "Stadium Jazz," which we hadn't we had stopped playing for years. We you know pulled that one out again, started playing that, um, and then I actually wrote some new music hmm. uh, for for this gig. So we played a couple new things. Uh, we did two sets actually in okay. Turin, so we were able to to, to you know uh, move the material around a little bit. So so yeah, did some new things, 
uh, with Gail. We also did something from Blackstar, uh, a song that I really love to, to, to play with Gail. Uh, oh. One of David's songs called Blacks, uh, called Lazarus. And okay. then we, uh, we also played Look Back in Anger, which is one of my favorite Bowie tunes. It's from a record of his called Lodger, which mm. I love. Um, so we played that. Uh, what else did we do? Oh, we did one of Gail's originals. So it was, you know, it was this combination yeah. of, of, of that, of that material. Did you, did you deliberately create setlist or was it, was it more on the, in the moment? How do you, how do you normally build the sets? Well, interesting, interesting because, because uh, I, I thought about that question. Um, and I'll say, number one, I, I, do, I set up the set list a long time in advance because I had so much time to think about it. Hmm. You know, uh, and so I, I, yeah, I thought about it for a long time, actually, and, and, you know, played with different ideas and different combinations and the different ratio of how much singing and how much instrumental, you know, mm, yeah. uh, and then what singing, quote unquote, songs to do. So anyway, so a lot of thought went into the set list. And then when I varied it on the, on the second set, that was kind of a, just a judgment call, moving yeah. a couple things around. But um so that was the case for Turin, but prior to that, you know, I, I was in a period where I did tour a lot and played a lot, a lot of shows back to back. And so those uh, often would be day of, you know, day of the show, I would figure out the set list. And, and I think one thing that I've been um, contending with is what's the ratio of the vocal music and the instrumental music. Mm. And, um, the balance there. Yeah. What's the, what's the balance? And, and once I started doing the vocal thing, you know, I, 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 um, I leaned pretty heavily into it. And, and, um, one thing that I reflected on, you know, with COVID and having time off was, you know, just was readjusting, uh, you know, readjusting that a bit. So I would, I would get a chance to do some more instrumental playing, um, yeah. you know, with those guys, Jason, Tim and Nate, we have such a long history together and it's just such a, it's so much fun to play with them and to see where the music will go and it can go in so many different directions, you know, and constantly evolve. And, and, and that's, you know, that's the heart of why I do this, you know, is is to be in those moments, you know, where those things can happen. Right. When did you book the, that, that gig? Well, it was supposed to happen um, last year. In 2020. Uh, yeah, and it was going to happen uh, in April okay. of last year. So, you know, of course, with COVID, so it got delayed. and I got think they pushed were, out. Yeah, they got pushed out. And then they, there was a potential rescheduled date that was like last summer. And, you know, we weren't ready to do it. You know, so then it happened this summer. And, um, hmm. yeah, it was, you know, it was just um, kind of an unforgettable gig. I bet to, in, in a way to have that much time off and <laughs> there's so much that happens during COVID for yeah. all of us artists, yeah. you know, but it's such a journey. And so to, to finally be able to be on stage again and be on stage with those folks and have it go so well was really, um, uh, was really great. Was that your first live performance since COVID or did you do some stuff no, in New I did, York? I did, um, there was a show, uh, with Antonio, his gig, he had a gig in Central Park. Um, oh, cool. That was some point this summer. I can't remember. I think like in early June or something okay. or late May or something like that. Yeah. I guess it was late May. Um, 
I, I did a gig with him, and that might have been the only other live gig in front of people I had done, unless I'm forgetting something. Like the thing, the thing that Steve Smith played for you, you know, we we did that. That was in so 2019 cool. or something. No, I think while. it was. When did that was? was that it? was recorded. I can. I remember. I was teaching. That was recorded probably earlier this year, but it was. You know, okay. at Birdland, it was a streaming thing. Nobody. There oh was, yeah, it was like, just. Was yeah, that's audience. right. It was just the three of you or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Steve and Eric and I. Um, yeah. So. Uh, that was super cool, and that's like some series that happens, right? That the producer, the promoter, somebody. Yes. The so there's, puts on. there's there's a um, a producer whose name is Milan yeah. Simich, and I met him years ago. He was the agent for steps ahead and, mm. and Mike Maneri essentially yeah, yeah. He's Mike, Mike's agent. So when I started playing with steps in the nineties, um, Milan was a big presence and he would go on the road with us a lot. And so I knew I, I got to know him then. And I think cool. he was doing things like on those record label that Michael Urbaniak was on. Um, mm. I don't know if it'll come to me, but anyway, he That's was producing, right. yep. he was producing things for that label. Anyway, so he has this history of doing these these things in New York, like at the Jazz Standard or at Birdland. You know, these themed projects. Yeah. Um, like the ones I've been, I did one um, that was Ascension. Um, you know, so it was Joe Lovano and, and uh, mm. Billy Drummond and Ben Allison and and I think Matt Wilson was playing drums also. Oh, um, nice. Jeremy Pelt was playing trumpet. Um, so anyway, you know, that was that was really fun. There was an Andrew Hill one that he put together and I, I really love Andrew's music. That was fun. Osby was on that and Greg Osby, Osby yeah. and, and um, anyway, so this wow. was another yeah, yeah. one of Milan's yeah. Milan's yeah. productions. So he you know, he sets up this framework, you know, this idea and it's his you know, he's the one who chooses the tunes and 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 sort of provides this framework, you know, and we just step in and yeah. do yeah. our thing within that context. So it's fun because it's fun, you know. Yeah. I, you know, the other thing I did, well, I can, I can keep talking about it, but uh, yeah. Anyway. No, it's okay. cool. I'm curious. So, you you go to Europe with your project and you step out on stage. Like, tell me, tell me what that felt like to see fans and like how many people were in the audience. It was good. It was a good good crowd. I mean, um, I think they were doing fifty percent capacity. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, a person, an open chair, a person, an open chair, a person. Yeah. Uh, but really big hall. It was, um, it used to be a, a factory where trains were repaired. Okay. So an interesting room, very rectangular. So hundreds of people there. I, I don't know. I wouldn't say 500. I'd say maybe yeah. 300 okay. or something, um, roughly. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, it was it was exciting to go on stage. Um yeah, I think you know. I'm just trying to remember if I was feeling nervous or not. I don't think so. I think I was just pretty, pretty psyched. Yeah. To uh, to get back out there. I, I, one thing that was funny is I had a, a trying. I, I, I it was my first night with this new microphone that I'm using, oh, which okay. is which goes inside the uh, the neck of the saxophone, and um, <laughs> it's the. Uh, I'm, I'm, How do you, you know, get so, it in there? <laughs> Well, it's, it's called. Do you have to intro- drill a hole or something, or no, no, no. It's um, first of all, it's called the intro mic, and it's it's from okay. Viga, V I G A okay. Tools. Great, it's a great thing because basically, 
the mic, there's there's this little. I should I, if I should have, if I had my saxophone, I would. No, show, no, but there's this little little um, wire that goes on top of the uh, cork. Not a wire. It's like a piece of of plastic mm-hmm. with some wiring inside it. And then the mic is mounted. You just mount it right inside the opening from your neck, and then you put the mouthpiece over that. And the mouthpiece holds the the, wow. the wire. Yeah, and so the beauty of it is you don't get any um, noise from the other instruments on stage. Oh. You know, the bass drum, the bass amp, whatever. So it was my first time using it, and it was sounding really good, but I didn't know, you know, I didn't want to have to walk on stage and, like, put the mic in, put my mouthpiece on, and then start playing. So it's okay, what am I going to do? All right, I'm just going to leave my neck piece on the, on the stage. You know, I just mm-hmm. left it on there, totally assembled. So I was just with my the body of my saxophone. I walked on stage. I plopped the neck piece, you know, and the mouthpiece on, got the reed going, and then started playing. <laughs> so I think I was a little concerned, like, it, you know, it's How's been sitting out there for 25 minutes. Is it going to be super dry? Yeah. Uh, you know, and it was, I think, you know, wasn't maybe the most um, full-bodied sound when I first started my, sure. my first entrance, but... Is there yeah. any res, res, do you feel any resistance when a blowing resistance with that thing in there? No, not at all. Not at all. No, it feels that's great. really cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I mean, I, I had the AM, I still have the AMT clip-on mic, which I like. It's it's great. Yeah, um, but it does pick up the noise Ambient. around me. Yeah. So yeah. so so this is a you know something yeah. a little more. Are you you know on these last recordings? There's um, quite a bit of effects on your saxophone in certain in certain of the songs, not all of them. But do you run effects in the live show as well? Yeah, I do. Um, and I need, you know, probably say the effects that I do on the live show are not as sophisticated as okay. what's happening on the recording. The recording yeah. is more produced, you know. There's more time, like to, post stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so I, you know, that's something I need to, um, spend more time with as, as live playing, you know, I need to up my game in terms of how I, how I produce the sound on stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, you know, I have the pedals that I like and I, and I go through different, a few different sounds, but it's not as complex as it could be. Right. Um, so that's the next, that's on my list of things <laughs> and it would have, COVID would have been a great time to do it, but it was just you know, really hard. Yeah. I have kids, I have kids. And right. You're a dad as well. Yeah, as. It's, it, you know, I just can't, I'm not able to spend 20 yeah. hours a day working on music. So yeah, anyway. I was just curious if you use pedals or if you were going through, uh, software. Um, definitely pedals. Yeah. Yeah. Pedals live. Cool. So with the audience, would they, I imagine they were super receptive to having live yeah, music. They, yeah, yeah, the audience was really enthusiastic, you know, and and, um, and I felt that too, I think, in Antonio's tour, mm. where, um, you know, folks are just happy to be out there hearing music and being out there together and, and hanging. Um, it was it was really, um, yeah, right. really nice. Right. How was it playing with Miguel? You guys hadn't played together before that, had you? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I know I... That's a good question. I mean, I feel like I played with them a few times over the years, but not nothing, not not nothing really sustained, you know. Sure. And 
yeah, I mean, he's just he's just a master musician. You know, mm -hmm. he he um, so great, so focused, and he's got so much together in terms of the language and and rhythm and invention. I mean, he's just he's a killing he's a killing musician, man. Right. He's a killing musician. <laughs> so it was it was great to play with him. You know, he was totally on it. And, and yeah, yeah, and and, uh, and there was a lot of space. In Antonio's music, there's a lot of space for interaction, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so finding, you know, how we could connect and, and all that stuff was, 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 was fun. Right. Now, Antonio does a lot of interesting rhythmic, I mean, he's like a freak of nature with all of his limb independence and <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I mean that in high, I'm high, high respect for his abilities, but I'm just does it do you consider that when you're playing with someone like him like to, that it's so there's all this there is a focus it seems like on on rhythm rhythm a lot well i would say that i i don't really think about that yeah and, and i think it's because he's um he's somebody who is a virtuoso player but he also but he's somebody that really serves the moment when he's playing mm. Yeah. So, you know, his virtuosity is really ingrained into his overall aesthetic and his musicality. Right. So he really, he really, he really serves the music and serves the moment. And I think that's what makes him such a special, you know, musician. And, yeah. and you know, he's a, clearly a dynamic soloist um, and, 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 and can sort of do anything, but he's just so like, in what we're doing and he's so responsive and he really um he really is in 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 it and and i think so that i think that's why i don't i don't think about that side sure. of his playing because it just feels all like it's organic yeah and it's happening and so there's times yeah where we go maybe we we get aggressive or we, this happens or whatever you know like there's sometimes where after the gig, you know, especially at the beginning, we were saying, ah, oh, you know, maybe um, we could have taken more time, or we could have done this or that, because we're still just getting our sea legs back. But yeah. all those, all those choices, they happen in the spirit of just going for it and being yeah. present in the moment. Here's Donnie from his album "Casting for Gravity." This one is called "Stadium Jazz."
mentioned the David Bowie that you played some Bowie on on your set, and I wanted to to ask. I know you've talked a lot about that experience, but I'm really curious. Like, so he he made a connection to you through, or you played Sue in, with Maria Schneider's orchestra. Is that correct? Yes. And then he came in, and did you did you actually meet him during that session, or did was it later that you met him when he after he came and heard your gig and sent you an email or? <laughs> uh, I think the, the chronology was that um, Maria and David and Maria connected, and they were yep. working on Sue, and and um, it was during that period that she recommended me to him and she played one of my records and, and suggested that he collaborate with me and my band. Mm-hmm. And, um, then they came to hear us play one night at the 55 bar and I didn't meet him, uh, but you know, saw them yeah. at some point really briefly out of the corner of my eye, but that was he, it. He and Maria were there together. Yeah. And okay. then, a few, maybe a week later or a few days later, we had the first workshop for their collaborate for their version of Sue. Okay. So it was, you know, Maria, David, Tony Visconti, myself, Ryan Keverly on trombone, Jay Anderson on bass, and Mark Juliana was was playing drums. So it was that mm-hmm. crew, and that's where that's where I met him for the first time. Yeah. So so uh, you know we talked intermittently, you know, through this four hour rehearsal and then that's where i gave him you know my contact info and it was sure. the, it was that next yep. morning that i woke up to an email from him and and sure. and then one thing led to another so the the recording for sue actually happened a few weeks after that like we had one more one more session where we we got together and and um workshop sue and then maybe a couple of weeks later we did the recording session right what was it like I mean, I imagine, you know, he was a, a hero of yours or someone you looked up to for a long time. I mean, he's a, he was iconic, is iconic. Um, like, what was that like to meet him in person that for the first time? Uh, yeah, I think I was... Um, Do you get starstruck? <laughs> Maybe yeah, I think don't. I was a little starstruck. You know, I wasn't... I don't know if I was, I don't think nervous is the right word. Yeah. But I think I was kind of starstruck because it's just like, wow, there he is, you know? And, yeah. and, um, and then we're talking and we're making small talk and then <laughs> I'm writing my phone number in this black book, you know, like that all seemed kind of <laughs> surreal because of, because I was starstruck. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I guess maybe there was the element of I also knew that this might this thing might happen. Yeah. And 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 trying not to think about that, but knowing that that's hoping that it would. You know that that's something that could happen, and and trying to, in a way, for me, keep my distance from any expectation and just in the moment, and yeah, you know, let whatever is going to happen happen. But yeah, I was a little starstruck. Starstruck for sure. Yeah. And then that process of uh, recording Black Star, I I can't even imagine what that must have been like. 
Well, it was great. It was really great. You know, it could not have been a more sort of creative environment. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, and I give credit, all the credit to David because he set the tone. And, yeah. you know, from the very beginning, the very first day, he told me, you know, to go for anything I'm hearing, not to worry about how this is going to be labeled or what genre it's going to be called, just to go mm-hmm. for whatever I'm hearing. He said the same thing to Mark, you know, like, don't worry if you want to play something polyrhythmic or whatever, mm-hmm. just go for it. So he was just completely open to mm-hmm. our, to our uh, creative input. And, yeah. and, you know, but at the same time, he had written these songs, which were fantastic. Yeah. And, and all the elements were there already. And, and so it was this wonderful framework for us to play in. You know, and, and, you know, there wasn't this sense of us having to reinvent the wheel or anything because the, yeah. these songs were fantastic. And, um, you know, it was just for us to color and do our thing and play within that context. And, yeah. you know, I, I had spent a lot of time, you know, flushing out the woodwind stuff and, you know, adding things and, and all that happened in its own time. And, yeah. you know, Jason, Jason had a lot of all of his keyboards there so he could layer things and Tim bought a bunch of bases. So it just all kind of happened really organically and in a way. And, and the analogy, you know, I guess I've probably used this before, but I think it's apropos. It's that the way that the four of us played, we still play. It's, it, it's like kind of like a basketball thing, you know, where mm. we're just constantly passing the ball back and forth and, and we're, and we're trying to move cohesively, you know, when it's connecting, yeah. we're, we're moving the ball around and, and it's cohesively and it can go in all these different directions at any moment. Mm. So the, so, so the beauty of this experience with David was that he stepped into that dynamic completely, you know, and it just felt like instead of four, now we have five and then the same thing is happening. And mm. within this framework of these fantastic songs that he had written. So yeah. it just, you know, it all just uh, felt really uh, cohesive mm-hmm. uh, from the beginning. And, uh, it's just you know a remarkable experience did he did he give much direction to you all or or was it more like i more like what you were just saying where it's like okay i trust you like just go for it and then we'll we'll deal with it in post uh yeah basically you know we had the demos and so yep. we would listen to the demo of like tis a pity she was a whore for example mm-hmm. and then we just go out and play it so there wasn't, there wasn't, um, there wasn't that kind of direction. Like yeah. do this, do this, do this. Yeah. We just listened. We learned the music, and we and we just did and we it. Did it. Yeah. You know, and, and so I, I guess when he did say things, they were more on the um, metaphoric level. Mm-hmm. You know, and and he didn't say a lot in terms of directions. It was more metaphoric, and and yeah. you know sometimes we talked. About the, like the the one tune on Black Star that there was a lot of, well, the like the song um, Dollar Days, mm-hmm. you know that was one that we didn't have a demo for. He just we we're just hanging out and he picked up the acoustic guitar and started playing, and um, how fun! Yeah, and then Jason, and then, then you know Jason's at the piano with him. They're playing, and then uh, you know it's well, what about a solo section? I said, well, well, how about we you know modulate here. And, you know, it just sort of happened really quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and then Mark picked up the brushes, you know, to, you know, I mean, we, that was one where from the time he picked up the guitar 
until we started tracking it was probably, I'm going to say a half hour. <laughs> and then, you know, and then, and then, you know, that one, we took some takes cause we were figuring yeah. out the form, but we did it. So from start to finish, it was a couple hours maybe. And then it was wow. over. We moved on to something else and it happened so quickly. I completely forgot about it. And, and when the first, when the record came out and people were talking about dollar days, I was like, man, what's that? I don't even know what that tune is. And then I heard it and I was like, oh, oh, right. You know, like that was that thing we did. Yeah. It just happened so fast, but, um, it's yeah. actually, you know, it's hard to say that's a favorite song or whatever, cause they're all sure. great, but that's one, yeah. that one really stands out to me. It's just the lyrics are incredible. Yeah. Did you have any sense of, of the precariousness of his health or, or was that not evident? Um, I knew it is, I knew the over the, I knew what his health situation was in a, in a, in a broad sense, you know, I yeah. didn't know, um, you know, I knew it was serious, but, but I didn't, you know, um, know exactly what the diagnosis was or like, sure. the, you know, I wasn't involved yeah, in yeah. the inner workings of it, but I knew he was sick. Um, but it didn't color his, um, performance or, yeah. or, or anything. I mean, he was just totally, totally in it and totally on it. Right. Yeah. Wow. What was the, what is the impact of doing that project been for you personally and professionally? Well, it was, it was a, it was a quite an impact. Um, I guess maybe I'll start on the professional side, which is, yeah. um, I'm going to take a little sip of water before I answer that. Um, no, go for it. So, yeah, basically, um, I started getting a lot more bookings as a band leader, you know, and, and mm. um, there was, you know, the way I describe it, it was like there was a wave, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, which was to be expected. Yeah. You know, uh, once it happened. I mean, it's not, I don't mean expected that I was thinking about it when I was making the record or anything like that. Right. Again, I tried to keep all of that stuff at bay, but once it became public knowledge and the record came out and then, you know, I mean, I, then at that point, you know, we played, yeah, we played a week at the village Vanguard and it was really sad because yeah. he had passed away, you know, but he was gonna, the, the idea was he was going to come sit in, with us, you know, mm. and, and play a couple tunes. And I just thought it would have been so wonderful for him um, to be on the yeah. stage of the village Vanguard and being such a jazz fan. Yeah. And for, for many years, uh, as you know, you know, decades of being a yeah. jazz fan. And, and I just thought it would have been so poetic for him to be on stage at the village Vanguard singing his tunes, you know? Yeah. So obviously that didn't come to pass, but you know, that was a big, big thing it was my first first time there as a band leader and, and so just a lot of emotions around all that mm. but um anyway you know once well all that stuff it was just such an intense period with him passing away and all the the, the the media attention all of that was really intense and hard to manage in a way you yeah. know because i wanted to you know honor his what I felt like his memory was and what he would want and his family and all that. And, yeah. you know, and then, and then anyway, it was, it's a long story, but, but what I was trying to say is yes. Yeah, so there was this wave of bookings that happened that, as you would imagine. 
Yeah. And, um, and so that has a tr- had a tremendous impact on my career in that, you know, it, it, um, it was the first time that, I mean, I've been touring, I had been touring as a band leader, but, you know, then, then it felt, it was just another level of mm-hmm. Europe, you know, being at all these festivals in France and Montreux and Spain, you know, it just felt like um, I got a taste of what that is to, to, to really be on that circuit and do a lot of that, those, those festivals. And that happened for, uh, I don't know, a couple of years or something. And, and yeah. I think part of what was really great about that was, you know, it gave me time to play all, just log all these hours as a band leader, putting to hearken to our earlier part of the conversation, putting a set list together, trying yeah. different things. And then, you know, I started imagining, okay, well, what's going to come next? And what, what's, you know, my new music or the direction, what is this, where is this going to go? And, and, you know, there was the immediate aftermath of all of that intense touring. I did a record called Beyond Now, you know, was touring that. And then, but, you know, a year later, I was stu- still touring a lot. And I feel like some of the, some of the deeper meaning of that experience of making Black Star was able to sink in. Mm-hmm. And I was, a- and, 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 with my creative imagination got going into some other places um, for what could come next. And that ultimately led to blow right? that record. And yeah. and then the current, and then the thing I was doing after that, there's some singles that have come out ahead of mine with Gail featuring Gail um, Tokyo, which features Jason. Um, uh, um, Reckoning was Re- a Re- Reckoning, uh, which I did with Ben Rubin. Uh, mm-hmm. producer, bass player in my neighborhood here in Brooklyn, and, and then Circling, which was mm-hmm. um, a song with Rachel Eckroth uh, that we wrote together. So all of those are kind of an extension of that aesthetic, and that aesthetic was able to take hold because I was spending a lot of time on the bandstand with my own band, playing these, playing songs over and over, and then thinking about, okay, what's going to come next? So so it had a tremendous impact on, on my artistic growth, you know, because I, I, I landed in this direction that I never would have imagined 10 years ago, you know? Um, and so that, and that was, that's really exciting. Um, mm. in terms of how it impacted me personally, I, you know, it's very, very deep. And, and I guess the first thing, it was just a very affirming experience, you know, that mm. he trusted me and the, the band with, with this material and, uh, and it worked out, you know, and, and yeah. I, all these, Things that I thought would be cool, this woodwind, this line, he was into all of it, you know, and, and so, um, yeah, I guess, you know, part of, you know, part of being a jazz musician, growing up in the era that I did and the way I grew up and the way I learned, there's sometimes this tension between, okay, you've got to learn the tradition. You know, and, and you've got to mm-hmm. you've got to le- learn to play like Lester Young and 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 um, and and follow the lineage and, and 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 that's true, you know. But but uh, I also I've I've always been somebody who's was drawn to other was drawn to other things as well, and then felt guilty, like ah, oh, you know, I don't know <laughs> enough of the tradition, and and then 
I would go go back and then I would be like, oh yeah, I'm so into Coleman Hawkins and I'm so into Chewberry and I'm so into mm. Ben Webster and Paul Gonzalez yeah. and um, you know, the list goes on and on. But I, what I'm trying to say, Steve, is that I didn't, for me, it didn't start with like, okay, I'm into saxophone and I'm going back and I'm starting and I'm working my way up chronologically. Like, it just didn't work that way for me because I didn't like I didn't like yeah, I didn't like some of the older stuff, you know. So I was right. more into like Train, mm-hmm. you know, and Michael Brecker, you know. Right. When I when I was when I was like a teenager and when I was in college at Berkeley, like super into Michael Brecker, you know. Yeah. And and Joe Henderson to a lesser extent, you know, and sure, you know Bob Berg and Dave Lieben and different players, yeah. but like you know yeah. that was my shit, and um, and it reached a certain point where I I realized. Okay, yeah, I, you know, I really need to, really need to expand, and and, um, and it's not, I mean, I'm I'm oversimplifying it because yeah, yeah. I, was, I was really into Sunny Stitt, you know, mm. and I was really into Bird and different people too, but but, you know, when I was 20 or 21 years old, I didn't have a super diverse, you know, history seeping yeah. out through my playing, but I did have some of it, you know. Yeah. I just didn't have, I hadn't done the chronological work. Um, you know, and then, and then right, it you didn't start with like Sidney Bechet and like, go. No, no. <laughs> but I mean, I had, I was really into Paul Gonzalez. Honestly, yeah. like he was one of my big influences when I first started. So, you know, it's just this sort of mixing and matching thing. And then I realized, yeah, you know, I really do need to listen to Lester Young more. And I did. And, and it's incredible, you know, and, but it all happened. I guess my point is it all happened. I don't know if I have a point actually, but it all happened <laughs> in a, it didn't happen sequentially for me. Right. And then outside of the jazz spectrum, you know, I was into a lot of different shit, you know? And, and when I was yeah. a kid in Santa Cruz, I played in a salsa band, uh, and, and I played in a reggae band and I played, um, uh, let me see. Um, what am I forgetting here? I played a lot of big band, Duke Ellington, yeah. big band, Duke Ellington, big band music. Duke Ellington, yep. Um, salsa band played played a bit in a reggae band um i guess i was just you know i was into the police i mean right. i just had you know a lot of different Diverse. interests yeah. and i was just sort of it was sort of the dna you yep. know of, of how i grew up and it was really the I'm tower, right with you, you know tower <laughs> yeah. power man. tower power you know aretha franklin yeah um, all that shit i love it you know so yeah anyway where i'm going with all this is that you know, part of the narrative about Black Star is like David Bowie makes a record with jazz musicians from the jazz scene. And I was like, well, that doesn't really tell the whole story because we're because of the aesthetic that I have. And, you know, I, you know, had a period of playing a lot of folkloric music from the Americas, you know, with Danilo Perez mm-hmm. and his band for a while. Fernando Torres, this Argentinian composer, like I had spent a lot of time doing that stuff and playing funk and, you know, I was in a funk band in New York for years. Like, you know, when you say, you know, it's a, he's, it's a, with a jazz band that paints this picture of like playing straight ahead. Right. And, you know, that's not who we are. Like we, you know, Tim, Tim Lefebvre, you know, Mark Giuliana, Jason Lindner have all had also d- their own journeys through jazz and improvised music, but, mm. but are guys that are also have this really broad, you know, taste and ability to be malleable stylistically. And the yeah. music that we were playing together under the heading of my group 
was this like exploration of the intersection of improvisation and um, you know drum and bass, you know ambiance uh, type stuff. Um, you know, so not what you think of as acoustic jazz yeah. at all. And then of course Mark had beat beat music that Jason and um, Tim were involved in, and then Jason's now versus now, you know, that Mark was involved in, mm. like all of that stuff is like electro music. Yeah. You know. So anyway. It's an evolution. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I'm with you. I had a I started I didn't start with Bird, I started with David Sandborn. Like that he was my jam. Yeah. Like that was that was my gateway into saxophone and i often ask this question of jazz educators it's a philosophical question of like okay so there there's there's a camp that says you absolutely must study the history you have to go back and like do the work and i the, the philosophical question i have is like okay if i study donnie mccaslin or if i study chris potter or if i study miguel zanon and they've all studied, they've all done that work. Aren't, to a certain degree, aren't I getting, I mean, I get, I'm not trying to like say you shouldn't listen to Bird or Train or you shouldn't go back and do those because it's great fucking music. But I know, I've seen, I saw kids in college who became burning players just studying the players they loved, which could be Bob Berg, Michael Brecker, yourself chris pot whatever like they you know and it's like well do they have history in their playing well i don't know are they great musicians yeah <laughs> you know yeah. so it's sort of, i don't know i i struggle with that with my own students i'm like follow your interests wherever that goes like there's no rules just follow your interests and i would try to turn you on to charlie parker because i think it's great i think just empirically it's great music clifford brown Great music, Miles Davis. Like, wh why wouldn't you want to listen to yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a hard, it's you know it's hard about it is because it, it's not black and white. You know, and right. I think with students, it's you want it, you know it's good to meet them where they're at and and find out what it is they're excited about because you want to nurture that. Yeah. You know, and and then at the same time, you want to show them you know where it came from and and yeah. and, and so. I guess, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm trying to think of how to, how I feel, to express how I feel about it. I mean, I think everybody has to do the work of checking yeah. out tradition, but it doesn't look, it doesn't look the same for everybody. Yeah. And that's, that's a great that's, way to put and, it. And that's what's, that's the gray area and that's what's, um, tricky or whatever not tricky yeah. but that's just it's yeah. a gray area you know it's so so for one kid it, it can look like oh they're really into Sidney Bechet and, and right. whatever and it's just natural thing but for somebody else they're like I don't want to hear that shit you know I want to hear <laughs> you know whatever I'm into um, but eventually yeah. eventually they do I think if they're gonna if they're gonna stay in this realm they have to do the, they have to, they have to, they have to get yeah. the foundation. It's just a question of, well, what does that mean? Does it mean yeah. a year with Sidney Bechet or transcribing <laughs> a couple solos or is it, you know, and, and that's, 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 um, 
I don't know what the answer is to that. Yeah, I don't either. Because I think we all kind of find our, our own way with it, you know? I mean... Yeah. We all have our own path, and I, I think that's... A, I, I, my, my position on it is that's totally fine. And like anything, when you're 20 years, 20 years old, you know, your palate is is uh for most of us i would say is is somewhat limited anyway like you the food you eat when you're 20 you know you eat different food when you're 50 like you know the music you listen to i think there's a natural maturation as as you go through life that you have you start to explore you're like oh what is that and what is that and you know you start to check those things out i i don't I think that it's it's a pretty natural thing for for that curiosity if you're if you're keeping your if you're if you're a curious person and you keep that at the forefront I can't see how you wouldn't you know Yeah I, I think you know when I was a teenager at one point you know I think somebody one of my father's friends was like man you got to listen to Stan Getz you know and I was like, man, that shit sucks. I don't want to listen to the guts, you know, it's like, ass, whatever, you know. You, you know, I'm like so in right. train. I'm so in right. train, you know, and, and Michael Brecker and that whole school. Yeah. You know, live at the lighthouse, you know, with Grossman and Levin. I'm like, Stan, I guess, you're fucking kidding me? Like, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but, of course, you know, that's, you know, an impetuous. Right. You know, just, I wasn't able to hear it. I wasn't mature enough. Yeah. Know? And then, you know, a few years later, it's like, oh, Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. The lyricism, you know, the, yeah. Anyway. So, so, um, yeah, yeah. 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 Here's Donnie from his latest single. This one's called the reckoning. Did you do a lot of transcription early on, or or did that come more at Berkeley? What's yeah, your experience with I, that? I, my, I, I did it all wrong, you know. Like when I was young, <laughs> I basically I had the Omni book, 
And then mm-hmm. I got to college and I had the Omni book and then I bought like, there was like a Don Sickler thing with train from blue train. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I remember and that. Joe, Joe Henderson. Yeah. Uh, page one, <laughs> you know, and some other, like another train one with countdown and, yeah. You know, so I had some of those books and I just pract- I practiced those things. I didn't even play along with the record, man, to be honest you with did. you. No. <laughs> Cuz so nobody funny. told nobody told me to. I didn't re- you know, I didn't really know. So I was just like, you know, just playing them like as fast as I could and you know, and then I got to school and some teachers would just give me transcriptions, you know, like mm-hmm. so I'd just be like again, not really playing along with the record, just like doing it, you know, and then, then in college, then I started transcribing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But I wrote them out, you know, like, and you then wrote I, them out. Yeah. And like, then like, Oli- like Olio, for example, train, you mm. know, like I wrote it out. Of course I'm listening to it. Yeah. yeah. I write it all out. And then I finished writing. And I play along with the record a couple of times and I just stop and I just keep playing it without the record. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck, I don't know what the fuck I was doing. You know, like it was all wrong. All wrong. Why? But, why? Why do you say it was wrong? Well, because because um, a little later, you know, then I started just learning solos by ear, mm-hmm. and then I really felt like, oh, okay, now I'm like, I know, I really know this solo so much deeper than if I just wrote it down and played it along a couple times the record and just kind of play it like an etude. This yeah. other solo I learned by ear, I know it so well and i can i really hear the nuance of the time mm-hmm. and the and the um the uh uh ornamentation yep. you know the way the rhythm section's playing it's just such a more so much it's such a deeper comprehensive musical experience that way yeah so so you know i but i didn't arrive on that <laughs> i didn't start doing that i don't know it was my 20s or something yeah so you know would you I, eventually write them out or not you nah, just start no I just See, like, there's, there's two, I, I find there's two camps on this. Okay. There's, there's the camp that says, and I'm, I'm in your camp. I felt like, because uh, my teacher, Steve Owen, taught me this. He was like, you don't need to write it out. Like, just learn it. Just spend time with the solo, really internalize it, learn to play it. And then if you want to write it out, or you write out a portion of it that you want to learn in all 12 keys or whatever. Just do that. That's fine. But then recently, I've talked to people on this podcast who are like, no, 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 no. Like writing it out is A, a faster way to get to the material. And you can ingest it on a whole other level because you've written it out. Like there's something about the act of writing it that internalizes. And of course, you have to play along with the recording. I mean, I'm thinking of Joel Fromm who, uh, that was like when he had his mouth wired shut, he's like sat and transcribed Johnny Griffin for like six months, the wow. rhythming, you know, and then, and then he played it for another six months after that. But it's interesting to hear you talk about it because I definitely hear like Alison Al, she's another one. You know her from out of Canada? Really great alto player. So she was, we were talking about this thing too. And she's the same way, like just learn it, shelve it, you know, I mean, internalize it and, and move along. But then there's this whole other camp that's like, no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, um, Clarence Penn was saying, oh, no, no, no. You got to write, you got to write that. <laughs> it's really funny. So I don't think there's, that's interesting to hear you say, oh, I did it all wrong. Yeah. 
Well, it's, you know, me being a little, uh, <laughs> you know, being hard on myself, but yeah, I did throughout this process. I did try all, I tried all of it, I guess I could say <laughs> for the most part. Um, but I didn't do, you know, there's, there's, uh, Dave Lieben talks about the thing. I think it's the Lenny Tristano thing where, where you don't even play the solo at first. You just sing it, you uh, sing yeah. it, you sing yep. it. And then you do this thing where you turn the stereo off and you keep singing and then you turn the stereo back on to make oh. sure your time is cool. You do all of that before you actually get the instrument out. So that's a, that's a different approach that, um, yeah, I've never tried that, but, um, yeah, I haven't yeah. tried that either, but that's interesting. So, what do you have your students do? I have them learn it by ear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't give them, um, I'm just thinking, I'm trying to make sure I'm telling you the right thing here. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think they essentially it's, it's by ear. Um, but some of them write it out anyways. And that's cool. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I ask them to do it by ear. That's cool. You were talking about um, playing with Antonio. We we're talking about rhythm, rhythm, and I wanted to ask you how you. This is something that I struggle with, and I think other saxophone players struggle with as well. Is like how to practice rhythm, and I mean like get different rhythms into your playing rather than just like streams of eighth notes. Like you know, incorporating different rhythms so that they become, or rhythmic, I don't want to say devices, but maybe that's the best way to say it. To, so it becomes part of your, your vocabulary. And I, I have a feeling that you've done a fair amount of that based on what I hear in your playing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I could spend a lot of time talking about that. You know, it could be a whole master class kind of thing. But basically, basically, yeah to boil it down, like, yes, I did practice rhythm. And, and for me, it was focusing on clave, which are, you know, my definition of clave for better, for mm-hmm. worse, is just a rhythmic pattern that repeats, you know? So I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily talking about like a two bar. So Montuna, right? Know? Like although two, three, is, or three, right, two. Although of course that is a clave and I did practice that and yeah. iterations of that. But, but, um, but I just broke it, I, I broke it down into practicing different rhythmic patterns, you know, that repeated and just, um, you know, in, in, in it probably a kind of a haphazard way, but, but I, I focused on that for a long time and, and it really helped, help my playing, you know, mm-hmm. um, and helped me to get more comfortable, you know, with, 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 uh, playing time and, and, and all that. Um, so yeah, would, I just, would you do it with a... Would you use a metronome? Do you yeah. use a metronome when you practice? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Like like, I did do it with a metronome, but not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I've been practicing. But that being said, I've been practicing this last week or so, and I've been using the metronome a lot because I feel like my time is not. You know, my time is is shaky because oh. of because of the COVID thing, and not. Yeah. And I wasn't using the metronome a lot. I wasn't even practicing a ton, you know, over COVID. It's a longer yeah. story because I have kids and my wife yeah, working yeah. a lot, and you know, so um, yeah. But but um, uh, so I, I go back and forth with the metronome, you okay. know, and and, yeah. and I I do believe that I want to be able to feel like I can 
play the time without having the metronome there, you know, that I have an interior internal groove. But at the same time, if that goes on for a year and a half, you know, maybe that's a little too long and it's time to go back to the metronome. <laughs> right. Right. And so when you're practicing those rhythmic ideas or those rhythmic patterns, are you just, how do I say, how do I ask this question? In my mind, I'm like thinking, okay, so you're not thinking melody or notes at all. You're just like putting on no, a metronome I, and practicing or picking on a backing track. And like, how would you, yeah, yeah, yeah. How would no, you no. do it? No, to break it down, I would most likely play it over a blues. Okay. And I would play harmony, but I wouldn't be always like um, nailing the harmony. Yeah. You know, I felt like it was, it was about the rhythm. Like, yeah. like you said, I mean, that's the focus. So, um, you know, if I'm playing, I don't know if I can think of a quick example, groups of five eighth notes in a row or, you know, group mm -hmm. of five in the context of four, four, am I yeah. always nailing when there's two, if there's two beats per chord change, am I always nailing, you know, that? Mm -hmm. No, I'm not. It's like <laughs> right. a gray, it's a gray area, but it's more about the rhythm for me. Right. And is that, what, what are your, like leading up to these, um, these gigs in Europe, what, what would your practice routine look like? Oh, let's see. Let me think about that. June. What was I doing in June? Well, <laughs> I was, I was trying to finish some of these new songs. Oh, finish writing. Honest. Yeah. And then I was trying to, um, then my practice routine would be um, a, a brief warm up, and then um, improvising over the songs that we were going to perform. Mm -hmm. Just trying to get used to playing over the harmony, and it's, if, even if this tune, a tune like, well, I mentioned earlier, Stadium Jazz, uh, it was an mm -hmm. older song of mine, but you know I hadn't played it in years, and so I just went back to the recording and was, you know remembering the counter melody and then the bass thing and how they relate and, and trying to find some different um, ways of navigating through the harmony, you know, on the, on the solo saxophone part, it's just one chord, you know? So mm -hmm. I was looking at playing over this other section and, and, and just different ways of navigating the harmony. So I think a, a lot of, because my time is limited now, a lot of how I've oriented my practice has been just playing over tunes, not necessarily my own songs, but like just, you know, uh, getting into right away, okay, uh, I have to learn the song for a recording session, let me just work out on it, you know, and, and yeah. try to find find my way through it so I can get comfortable with it. So are you, is that more exploratory or do you like, are you more like, hmm, I want to try... I want to try this. I want to see how that goes, or I want to try this, or is it more just you're th you're playing along with it and exploring in the moment? Um, let's see. Or maybe it's none of it. <laughs> none no, it's of not. No, no, no. It's a good question. It's it's because it's it's not just freestyle playing. Yeah. Usually, because I feel like that only gets me so far. Yeah. It's so so. There's some of that. And there's some of like discovering, okay, this idea came up. Oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll try to work with that idea. But then mm -hmm. there's also just like, well, let me put a framework around this. It's a little more focused. Like, okay, here's um, there's a, here's a five note shape in the melody. That's cool. Mm -hmm. um, 
let me see what if I move that around diatonically and play that five note shape and then you know what if I play it backwards you know or something like that yeah. so I'll, I'll 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 look for some sort of um, framework to help give me um, some focus sometimes mm-hmm. if I feel like I'm not finding anything you know right or sometimes I just sit there and I'm just working with them you know I'm just playing trying to um, lock in with the time you know which sometimes feels hard mm-hmm. and frustrating you know? yeah do you simplify at that point if you're finding trying to lock into the time like rhythmically do you just like yeah probably yeah 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 I do. I do. play quarter notes that's what I, I I've been told like play quarter notes get your time get your time figured out with quarter notes yeah I mean I think it's worth exploring all the rhythmic subdivisions yeah within reason half notes whole notes quarter notes quarter note triplets eighth notes eighth note triplets 16th notes you know all yeah. of that is worth exploring I think yeah so um what what came out of this last year? I know it was hard. I mean, it was a big transition for everybody and and you spent some time with your kid, you know, being more of a dad and being at home, but what what if anything did you learn about yourself or did you take away from that time that that seems really valuable now? That's a deep question, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, uh, let's see. Um, I think one thing that I talked about earlier was leading up to COVID, I was in this thing of just, there was so much going on and the overall aesthetic of what I was doing as a leader was on the side of a lot of vocal, mm-hmm. you know, that being 85% of the show, let's say, a 90% of the show. Okay, so mm-hmm. I think one thing that came out of it for me is like, okay, I want to look look at that again and, and adjust it so there's more instrumental. More balance. Playing, more balance. Because um, I, I do enjoy so much playing and interacting with the band in an instrumental way. So so I think that's one thing that came out of it is, is a shift in how I how I – and how I present the music. Yeah. And um, I think also, I mean, I don't know if this is much of a change because I knew, so alluding to what you asked me earlier about um, the post Black Star experience and what that mm-hmm. meant for me in terms of gigs, and I was talking about how it was a wave. Yeah. So I was on that wave and I knew that, you know, there's no telling how long this is going to last mm-hmm. and, and, you know, how, if it'll sustain, if it's going to peter out or whatever. So I tried to be really in the moment and to enjoy all those moments on the stage because, you know, there's no guarantee of what's going to happen. And I yeah. always tried to give my best and to, and to make every show like to just lay it all out there um Mm -hmm. and and so that continued um and i guess when i look back on that you know the the, i i guess i feel like there was 
you know, there, it might have been nice if there would have been a little bit of time for me to adjust, have time to reflect and adjust things. Like I didn't mm. have time to reflect because it was all happening so much with the yeah. working family, you know, what all the other stuff. It was just a lot. And, yeah. and I've been, I feel like I've been going real hard for four years yeah. or whatever. And it's but, been, yeah. and it was great. I mean, like a dream come true. Yeah. Being on that wave was a dream come true for yeah. sure. But um, I think having time to reflect um, on all of that, you know, I see some adjustments I want to make. Um, and yeah, that, so there's that stuff. I mean, I think also on, you know, on, an, I don't want to say a negative side, but, mm-hmm. you know, this part of me that was questioning, you know, well, is this it for me? You know, as, as mm. I, as a band leader, is there really an audience there that wants to hear this music? Like, you know, you know, there was some of that struggle of like, you know, what's it going to, yeah. you know, do I really want to do this anymore or do I want to walk away? You know, and that's extreme. You yeah. Know, um, but those are honest thoughts that I've, I've, sure. I've thought about, you know, do I want to walk away from this now and just, you know, um, it felt, you know, it feels like I did feel, you know, that my wave was tapering a little bit, you know, yeah. maybe not, you know, it's harder for the agent to get gigs or the fees or whatever. So not, not as many people showing up and, you know, maybe, and I, and I, again, I went real hard on the singing thing, which I believe in, I believe in the tunes are great. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my primary collaborator is this guy, Ryan Dahl. He was an amazing musician lives up in Vancouver. Um, mm. just an incredible songwriter. You know, I, I really believe in that material, you know, but, but I, but I also, you know, was trying to transition to more of the rock scene yeah. essentially. And that's hard, you know, yeah. is it like, you know, where, For sure. what's the, what's the, you know, like if in a jazz room, like, you know, got like synth guitar sax with pedals, electric bass, vocals, background vocals, drums, like certain rooms were just too fucking loud for and it's not the right vibe. But then you go to the rock thing and it's like, you know, I'm drawing people, but I'm not drawing 300 people, you know, at a certain venue. And, and so there's the, and, 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 you know, I feel like, man, I really believe in the music, like on blow. I really believe in those songs. I think it's amazing. It's really cool, et cetera, et cetera. And people like it, but you know, it's not like, it's been a breakout, whatever yeah. hit, and suddenly yeah. all these crossover people are coming. I mean, certainly Bowie fans come to my shows, and there's you know there's some of it, but yeah, you know it's like it's a it's a it's a long. It could be a long slog to keep doing that, and I'm just not sure, yeah, you know how that's going to play out. So for me, I just focus more on the art, you know, and like I just want to keep producing meaningful art you know mm. that's interesting and forward-looking and is going to move the ball down the field so to speak and right. um so in some ways a lot of that is out of my control like who knows what's going to happen another a song comes out it's a big thing suddenly all these options materialize or maybe it won't happen yeah. and and so i'm you know in some ways i'm i feel a little stuck between these two different worlds you know i'm not playing acoustic jazz um, right now, I mean, I'm yep. going to do, I, I actually am going to do some gigs in September as a trio, 
acoustic, mm-hmm. which will be super fun. But you know, primarily what I'm doing is in this still in this world of this hybrid, yeah. and and um, so yeah, I'm just not sure how it's going to play out. But I, again, sure. I'm 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 just focused on the art art side of it as much as I can be, and um, and just see where the chips fall. But to just yeah. go all in on trying to make it like the best musical um, thing it can be, the most creative thing it can be, make that the highest level it can be, and then we'll see what happens. Right. But, you know, sometimes feeling like walking away from the pressure, you know, it's a lot of pressure. These (laughs) last years, all the touring, band leading, road manage, you know, it's like I I should get a sound person, but don't (laughs) have the money to get a sound person. You know, I mean, there's all that kind of stuff, you know, I need to to do more social media, but I'm not the type of personality who wants to do social media. I don't want to talk about myself on social media. I don't want to hype myself. It just kind of goes against, you know, my instinct or not Mm -hmm. my instinct, but my, my personality. And and so that's, but that's a thing you have to do and it's a drag and, you know, so sometimes, (laughs) yeah, that's part of why sometimes I think about walking away and, you know, I, I, Anyway, so so I like I think for so many people, you know, COVID, there's there's just been a journey. There's been some really positive things. There's been things that have been difficult, you know. From his album Blow, here's Break the Bad. sit down to write do you are you at the keyboard most of the time or or tell me a little bit about your yeah. writing process well um yeah mostly at the keyboard not exclusively but mostly at the keyboard and then even more so now because um i got um i got a profit rev two from mm. sequential uh not that long ago which is a great synth and has a lot of great sounds in it. But I also got uh, Nick Semrad, who plays him sometimes. He hit, he hit me with his sound bank, 50 great sounds. He just hit me with 50 more. So and now a lot of my writing is on the profit, and I'm using logic. And I'm, yep. you know, layering, got a bass sound, I got a, you know, 
So I'm writing that way, which is which is really fun. You know, mm. I just I, I could use more time to do it because yeah. I'm I'm not really I'm just a beginner with logic really and <laughs> sure. and and, and stuff like that. But um, so I do have my Wurlitzer, my trusty Wurlitzer, which I still write on for sure. But but you know, if you would ask me this question a year ago, you know, it's just all the Wurlitzer, you know, yeah. and sometimes the saxophone. So now it's it's still the Wurlitzer, but also um, the Prophet. It plays a major role now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you start with like a melodic idea usually or a bass line or it just varies? It varies. You know, a bass line, you know, yeah, a chord. So oh. it's the three. It's the three, you know. Yeah. You mentioned two. The other <laughs> thing is sometimes it's a chord sound, you know. Yeah. But also, I guess now too, for me, sometimes it's also just a sonic thing. Like if mm-hmm. I'm playing on the prophet, I find a sound I like, you know, I just start messing around and it's like the sound is inspiring and gets me going on something. Yeah. Did you ever have an Ewe? Did you ever play with that thing? That Not really. I, I did. I tried, I mean, I tried it a couple of times. I, I, just, yeah. I couldn't play it. I was yeah. um, <laughs> just, just curious. Cause I know Brecker, he, you know, he kind of championed that for a while there. Oh yeah. And he was incredible on it. Yeah. And, and then those cats into... are doing it. Like Dayton Stevens plays it. Chase Baird mm-hmm. plays it. I think Sh- Seamus Blake plays one. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I, I um, Not your thing. Not my thing. At least not now. Yeah. yeah. Do you listen to a lot of music? Do you consume much music? Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. Like when I'm in the middle of writing tunes, I don't listen to a lot of music. But I mean, it depends. It's yeah. not a black and white answer, but... <laughs> So, so let me put it this way. Sometimes when I'm in a, in a writing thing, I don't listen to a lot because I'm, I'm just like the, the things I'm working on are just going on and on in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but other periods I, I do listen to music, you know, and, and I tend to get overwhelmed. Like, you know, back when I would walk into Tower Records, I would just be like, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. and it's, so it's the same way on iTunes. I'm just like, uh, you know, right. uh, sometimes where but, do I go? Yeah, but but um, I do listen to things lately. I have been working on writing, so I haven't been listening a ton. But like, I'm trying to think what I've been listening to lately. I've, I've been listening to just really started listening to Laura Muvala's new record. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, what else do I have here? I'm just looking at my library really quick. Um, listening to Serta, uh, this uh, like electronic electronica guy. Um, mm-hmm. Julian Lodge's new record, James Francie's new record. I checked those out. I was listening to Antonio's music, you know, mm-hmm. for the tour. Right. Yeah. Uh, St. Vincent's new record. I've been checking out. Uh, I did a recording project, um, a tribute to Frank Kimbrough who passed mm-hmm. away recently. And so I was listening yeah. to some of his music, you know, to prepare for that. Um, Branford's new record, or I don't know if it's how new it is. I think it is his newest one. It's called the yeah. secret yep. secret between us or something. Listen to that. Listen to some Steve Reich. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, you know the the music for eighteen musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, that new record, um, "Floating Points," uh, with Pharaoh um, Sanders. I was checking that out. Um, cool. What else? What else? Yeah. Okay. That's no. That's, that's plenty. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, not. 
a lot of musicians I talk to don't listen. They're like, I just want peace and quiet. Like I don't want to listen to music when I'm. Yeah. Well, uh, I know, you know for me, I need, I need some stuff to get me inspired and get me yeah. going, you know, to get my imagination going. I need to feed it. Do you, uh, do you get inspired by other sax players? Definitely, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I actually listen to Charlie Parker a lot. Yeah. Um, do you know, have a favorite a, Charlie Parker album? No. Um, <laughs> because, because there's, there's this thing, WKCR, Phil Schapp has that show every day. Bird flight. Mm-hmm. I listen to that all the time for years, you know, so it's, so it's just, you know, it's yeah. spanning his whole thing. So, so, but if I was going to pick a record, you know, I would pick like the, you know, the Savoy sessions or the dial mm-hmm. sessions. One of those that has like, yeah. you know, four CD, you know, four LPs worth of stuff and it's all the hits, all that, all right. that stuff. Yeah. Um, so let's do a lot of bird. Um, I mean, I love, you know, Walter Smith. I love mm-hmm. his playing. Um, Ben Wendell, mm-hmm. love his playing. Mark Turner, love his playing. Chris Potter, love his playing. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, I, I um, uh, there's so many great saxophone players. Yeah, yeah, there are um, for sure. I was just thinking of um, to, to, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, I don't know him very well, but so I might be mispronouncing his name, but Tyvon Pennicott. Uh, mm-hmm. Pennicott, he's a great player. He did this beautiful record with some with strings and killing. So, yeah, I was another saxophone players, but not, you know, but not a ton. Yeah. You know, I listen more to like, um, especially when I'm trying to get some ideas for writing, like I would be listening to uh, Beyonce's record, Lemonade, or, Mm -hmm. um, uh, what else? Um. There was a period where I was listening to some different things. None of it was really jazz based, so it wasn't saxophone yeah, right. type stuff. Is what, what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, what what's coming up for you? Like, do you have more, like a a whole line of gigs coming up this summer or the fall, or is it just kind of drip drips and drabs coming no, in? Basically, I have um, uh, I'm going to record soon. Uh, so that's the, my focus yep. right now. And then early September, I've got a couple trio gigs um, with uh, Desron Douglas and EJ Strickland in mm-hmm. the in the Midwest. Um, I was going to do a tour in mid September with a with a drummer over in Europe, but unfortunately he got sick, so so oh, that no. tour got canceled. Um, I might have a couple things at the beginning of October as a leader, um, and that's kind of it for the fall. I don't have much. Um, I might be forgetting some things, but, but I, I don't have much as a leader for the fall, but next year it looks like it's going to be quite busy. So, um, there's plenty to do, you know, between now and then. And, uh, yeah. you know, like I said, since I was thinking of quitting anyways, um, I <laughs> you can't quit, Donnie. We're not going to let you yeah. um, hang up their saxophone or, <laughs> or the, or your voice. Okay. <laughs> Cool. Um, yeah. Well, I'm looking, I'll be excited to see your, oh, I, there was one other question I wanted to ask before I asked that, which is, so you played with, it seems like you played a lot of, with a lot of, uh, people that you look up to a lot of, 
I don't know if I'll call them legends, but like mentors, people that heroes, you know, is there anybody, if you, anybody that you would like, wow, I really would love to play with this person I haven't gotten to play with yet. Is there anybody on your list? Yeah. Like well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, of course, some of them have passed away, you know, yeah. but, um, there, but in terms of, you know, the jazz world, like I did play with Roy Haynes one time. I sat in, wow. of his, but you know, I'd still love to play with him more. <laughs> he's just, you know, he's so incredible, man. Um, yeah. I, I guess, you know, I'd love to play with Schofield and Dave Holland, you know, those guys, I'd love to play with Jack Dijonette. Mm. I'd love to play with them. Um, let's see. I'm just, you know, there's various people. Um, <laughs> I'm That's a great of, list. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, I would love to get a chance to play with Herbie Hancock. You know. Yeah. Um, I was so I was thinking like that would be a, especially where you're going with, you know, he he kind of meshed worlds all the time too, and that's really, yeah. you know, you're yeah. following that that similar vein. I would love to play with him. Yeah. You know, I, I know that Wayne Wayne Shorter, of course, is kind of um, retired, Herbie's, but of course, yeah. I would love to play with Wayne Shorter. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I feel like that stuff will probably never happen, but you but never yeah. know. You yeah. never know. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Hey, Donnie, thanks for being here on the show. It's been great having you, and um, looking forward to the recording and whatever else creatively comes out this year. Uh, Thank you. You're on, you're on Instagram, Facebook. And what's your what? It, where can people find out more about Donnie McCaslin? Well, I have a website, you know, and uh, yes, I have a website, and you know, there's occasional things on Twitter as well. Okay. So people can find me if they're interested. <laughs> they can find me on one of those platforms, you know. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, Donnie. Well, uh, thanks again for being here, and. Uh, I hope, hope we can talk again sometime soon. That'd be my pleasure. Thanks awesome. so much. Yep. Hey, everyone. Just a couple of things before you head on your way. First of all, thanks again for listening. So appreciate you as an audience. And if you enjoy the show, please tell a friend. It's a goal of mine to grow the audience and get the exposure these musicians deserve. So please tell somebody point them to the website, point them to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'd love to grow the audience and give these artists the attention they so deserve. Speaking of the website, head on over there, theplayfulmusician.com. You can hear all past shows and see show notes from this show as well as all the other shows. I hope you're enjoying this summer. Things are starting to heat up and we've got a great lineup on the way for the next few months so stick around and leave a review if you're if you're enjoying the show it'd be great to get more reviews up on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast okay everybody take good care and we'll see you real soon <laughs>